Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. It's true, it's me. Hi, Rich Kimball here with Carrie Haskell. This is indeed Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 155. Brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Well, as always, we've got a couple of fine conversations for you on this edition of the podcast. A little bit later on, uh, writer Dan Epstein has partnered with former Major League Baseball player Ron Bloomberg, baseball's first designated hitter, for a wonderful book called The Captain and Me that looks at Bloomberg's friendship with Yankee catcher and Captain Thurman Munson. And we'll talk with them about the book and their experiences later on, but uh, up front... A legendary journalist uh, worked for CBS News in Chicago and nationwide, anchored their CBS uh, morning show for a number of years as well, has gone on to a great success on the Decades channel, has also uh, got his own production company that has produced hundreds of documentaries. Oh, and you might have heard his voice in films including Anchorman. We talk about how that happened, his uh, career trajectory, and much more and his work as well on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the wonderful Bill Curtis here on Downtown, the podcast. You have had such a remarkable career, Bill, but uh, in doing a little research, I uh, I came to find out that uh, this was not the plan. You were uh, well on your way to a career in law. What happened? Boy, um, a big surprise. I had accepted a job at a trial firm in Wichita, Kansas. I was studying for the bar there with the rest of my uh, colleagues, and a friend, the news director at the local TV station, WIVW, um, asked me to fill in on the 6 o'clock news. So off I went, leaving my tax law review class. <laughs> I was happy to do that. And um, delivered a half hour. They said, why don't you stick around? We have some strong weather that's coming across from Manhattan about 60 miles away. And when I got pretty close to us, I had a cameraman who was out on the southwest edge of the city. We had dispersed all our guys, and he said, well, we've got a tornado on the ground. I see it. It's right in front of me. It's huge, and it's headed for the city, 150,000, capital of Kansas, uh, between the tornado and, uh, you know, the Capitol Dome, where it was headed. You know, you have a college uh, where the law school was. You have a mental institution. You have shopping malls and residential development. So it was uh, pretty serious. I waited, kind of held my fire until I confirmed what it was, uh, that it wouldn't uh, dissipate, jump up in the air again. And uh, the next uh, report he had was that the Huntington apartment complex, 200 apartments uh, had been wiped out right down to the ground. What I didn't know is that it was an E5 before they even rated tornadoes. Wow. This was 1966, and uh, so I gave the warning. I was 26 years old and stuck with the slot where you, you know, you knew the words were meant life and death. And I said, for God's sake, take cover. Um, and my, I, my face went as white as my shirt. And we stayed on the air for 24 hours, mm. and uh, but couldn't stop the tornado. It went right through town, 11 miles on the ground. I think we had uh, 17 dead and uh, probably more damage. It was the first to they hit and may still be, you know, the biggest city to take that big a tornado. Usually they're out on the plains and they get a farmhouse here and there or a trailer park. And um, it was uh, serious. So I you know, call, I said, you know, and I've been struggling with the decision between staying in broadcasting and, uh, you know, practicing law. And you have to assess your talents. And I, but you go to the three years in law school and you also want to use that <laughs> to practice. And I said, well, nope, God is showing me the way. And uh, so I sent out my tape. We did that too in those days. And um, I was picked up at CBS, made the jump, which is a big jump to a big market. And the rest is history. 30 years with CBS and uh, 50 years at all, my own production company. 
Incidentally, I went back. Uh, my start was in Independence at a little 250-watt station. And when my first boss uh, in 1958, when I was in high school, died, um, I went back and bought the station. And it was uh, a purchase out of emotion and nostalgia more than anything else. <laughs> So I know from the inside out the value of a community radio station that really serves uh, the people. And, uh, you know, I was lucky. Absolutely. Well, you arrived in Chicago at a fortuitous time in American history uh, with the assassination of Martin Luther King and all that followed that, and then the Democratic Convention of 1968. It was a big one. Um Today in the Washington Post, there is an article about the Kent State and the young girl who was caught on film, um, you know, with anguish in her face, kneeling over one of the dead students that had been shot by the National Guard. Um, that was became the symbol of anti-war protests. And uh, it was just before I, frankly, left to go with CBS News out on the coast. But those four years were really formative. I had the Richard Speck trial, one of the uh, trials of the century. Um, we had the King assassinated, Bobby Kennedy assassinated, um, Chicago burning, major cities across the country burning. And, uh, and then you had the Democratic Convention uh, with the protests in the street. And then you had the next year... The conspiracy trial, which is now up for an Oscar, right. uh, you know, in, in Sorkin's uh, uh, depiction of it. And um, and then well, I covered the conspiracy trial and Manson, Charles Manson, in 70, and Angela Davis to follow, and one Corona who killed 25 people. So um, those were all trials of the century. And I said, yeah, I know. I've covered four of them. <laughs> it was also uh, it was your investigative team that broke the story of Agent Orange as well, wasn't it? Probably, yes. Probably the biggest story that I'm associated with, um, mainly because it's still going on. The Vietnamese are still have a, in The Hague, uh, have a lawsuit against us for the damage uh, that, uh, you know, Agent Orange did to the populace. And um, it, was a, it was a tough one, and certainly I called on my legal background because I had to get ready to go to trial if necessary. I was a journalist and didn't have the, the, the weight of the responsibility of getting a, enough of, of the real evidence. But um, I had got enough. And I had to prove, first of all, I had to prove that I, I got four names from the Veterans Administration Office. And I'm sorry, 11. And they were, um, you know, soldiers and no sailors, some Air Force people who had come down with symptoms that uh, were unexplained, similar but unexplained, and they were being brushed off by the VA. And uh, so I went and interviewed all of them, and they were, you know, really poignant stories. But they all described being seeing a white mist of defoliant that was sprayed on the trees to create uh, these free fire zones around, especially around landing strips for helicopters and, and uh, places where they needed to clear of, you know, the free fire uh, area. So you could see the enemy coming. Otherwise, they'd sneak right up uh, in the trees and kill you. So there was a reason they used it, but they didn't know how powerful it was. It had been used for 40 years by farmers, okay, as long as you, uh, you know, uh, uh, followed the directions. Right. But when war came along, they wanted to increase the amount. They really liked it. And in increasing the amount, it increased the amount of dioxin, which in it, which is uh, the most poisonous substance we make, man makes. And so we went from first... Um, you know, estimations of 10 pounds. Well, we just sprayed 10 pounds of dioxin, you know, in the rest of the mix uh, over uh, Vietnam. Well, it was, it was far more than that. And nobody really knew until we started going through the records uh, after the war. And when it fell, and also nobody realized, and I say nobody, 
that means the military, realized that we were spraying our own troops as well as the Vietnamese, but as well as the jungle and the uh, uh, foliage. Uh, triple canopy, boy, you know, you have to. But I, m one of the clues that tipped me off was uh, a guy, a grunt, you know, with a Marine uh, rifle squad. He said, yeah, we would walk through the jungle. And uh, we saw the white stuff, and they were hang it was hanging on the trees. And uh, what he didn't know is that ordinarily it takes two weeks to work through the poison cycle. It's sort of hormonal so that it causes the vegetation to outgrow uh, itself. And he said, well, we, we saw it fall, uh, the leaves falling off in two hours. Oh, mm. two hours instead of two weeks. Suddenly, you know, this stuff is different and poisonous. Well, the long and short of it is that, um, you know, uh, there was a huge, we, I went back to uh, the Armed Services Committee that was jammed because people had heard uh, the report from this small station. I mean, not small, but it was a local piece for BBM in Chicago, happened to be owned by CBS. And we did a Cronkite piece, but uh, basically we were the ones doing the research and the VA wanted to kill us, kill it, because, well, what did they know? If it was really important, the network, Cronkite, would have been doing it. But um, we hung in there, and I go into this gathering, and all the, uh, the top VA people were there, and they were all set to knock us down. And the camera, uh, and, and I played an hour documentary that we had done on it, the camera zooms in to this one young soldier with his five-year-old that had come in. And the five-year-old put his hand on uh, his knee. And as we zoom the camera in, it shows the tip of his little finger hanging mm. by skin, a congenital birth defect that all of a sudden sweeps over this very high-powered audience and and. All I could hear was just, oh, my God, uh, realize one picture did it, you know, realize what, what we have done to our own troops. Well, from there, they, the VA finally started to recognize a, a problems that we really, you know, you can't have a causal effect for cancer. It just happens, and it's impossible to go back 20 years. Well, roughly the same kind of thing. Today, 200,000 veterans have been compensated. 50 diseases are now recognized as connected, and, uh, and it's still going on. And what the reason is that, uh, you know, the, the theory is that it got into the fatty tissue and stayed there until guy loses weight. When he loses weight, why the chemical comes out and, and causes the problem. And now we are seeing uh, 65-year-old guys who are, suffering from Agent Orange poisoning goes all the way back. And who knows when it'll stop, but it was chemical and biological warfare that, uh, and they finally stopped it. Anyway, that's the biggest one I've been associated with. We're, we're talking with Bill Curtis here on Downtown. Curtis Productions has done uh, uh, an incredible, Incredible number of brilliant documentaries, uh, and a, a large focus of your work too has been on conservation. Uh, what made that an important cause for you, Bill? I always wanted to be a forest ranger, but uh, <laughs> I also, when started, when I started my own company, and this must have been uh, eighty-eight, ninety, um, I wanted to prove that we could take that I could compete with National Geographic, you know, and we could take this, uh, the top, what I saw as the top story of the day. This is in 1990, and it was about climate change. And if you were into the science, uh, they were already saying, well, you know, the world is going to heat up and carbon dioxide is going to increase. And, um, you know, <laughs> the whole world will change. We were getting predictions of the Southwest United States entering a mega drought so bad that people, one, couldn't make a living, but they would be migrating out of the United States and finding other places to live because it was so bad. Well, what do we have today? Go uh, to the internet and look up U.S. drought and uh, see what it says. But to me, these stories uh, should have been on the front page then. It took about 20 years before 
<laughs> it really sunk in, I guess. But it took me to every, you know, the ra- every problem, the rainforest and deforestation. And, um, you know, I went um, 8,000 feet down in the Pacific off the Galapagos to discover uh, new life down there, according to uh, Rich Lutz, a uh, scientist for, at Rutgers University. And uh, and all around, it was the it was the best. We did a hundred shows for PBS called The New Explorers, uh, and it was educational. We thought for about seventh grade, but it was the best thing that I've done. And finally, wound up uh, making the transition over to something that paid, <laughs> <laughs> which was Gold Case Files and American Justice and Murders. So. Um, some substance <laughs> exchanged for entertainment. Well, I enjoy the work you do as well uh, on uh, the Decades Channel. Through the Decades is uh, you know, a wonderful yeah. look at history. I, I watch that with my, my son, and uh, it gives him a nice introduction to, to history. And uh, I do great work uh, going through the archives and letting us know all the things that happened on this date. Oh, thanks. Well, uh, most of the video comes from CBS, and then we would supplement it with, uh, with others. And I like to say, you know, that will be the singular uh, product uh, of mine that will last for a long time, because we did the day in history that uh, you may read, you know, as it comes across the the wire in the old days, now the Internet, and um, 600 shows. So this thing could last a lifetime. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and and it's, uh, it's a surprise. Because, you know, it hasn't hit the, the major networks or even Netflix. Uh, it's been picked up by the digital channels. But it, it'll get there. We also are... up everything, you know. Oh, I mean, my exactly. Goodness. Well, we're big fans here of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. We, uh, we hold a little contest every year where listeners vote for our favorite guest. And uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, Paula Poundstone... Uh, one as this year's favorite guest. Paula is a regular on our show, and uh, we've had Tom Bodet on and several of the uh, Wait, Wait participants. Uh, it, it's great to hear a different side of Bill Curtis on there. <laughs> well, I, uh, you know, I did this one for fun. And the problem with being an anchorman or, you know, a serious news correspondent is you never get to laugh. Uh, God forbid uh, a smile, a laugh would enter into that serious news. Uh, you know, you say, ah, oh, Charles Manson, <laughs> well, he finally is going to get his, you know, uh, <laughs> and he was found guilty. Uh, you can't do that. So, uh, wait, wait, I thought I was uh, just doing a favor for Peter Sagal, a friend of mine, and I wound up liking it so much that he did. So I'm the straight guy. You need, you need somebody who's <laughs> over 30. Of course, Paul is over 30. Paula's our, our star, and uh, these are world-class, you know, stand-up comedy guys, comedy guys. And, yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. And how did you get involved with uh, Will Ferrell and Anchorman? Will, or, um, Adam McKay, um, now an Oscar-winning director, uh, this last Sunday he had a full-page picture uh, as an interview. He is hot, 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 in the New York Times Magazine. Adam McKay um, was a senior writer for Saturday Night Live. But back in the day, as they say, he was with Second City here in Chicago. When I was on the air as as the anchorman and really making my bones. And so uh, I was, I guess, his favorite anchorman. So when this came up, why he sent me the script and he said, I know you, you can't do it or don't want to do it, but... You know, could you keep me? Why don't you read it, and et cetera, et cetera. So I'm on the phone, on the plane, and uh, I'm laughing, <laughs> going through the script. <laughs> and then I send him uh, what turned out to be an audition tape, and uh, uh, not meaning really. And I could hear them at Universal City, and he's there with, um, uh, you know, the, the, the literally the handful of guys who were the top uh, comic movie people for the last 10 years or more are laughing. And when you write comedy, once you say it or hear it, it's then old. And so they didn't know what was funny or not. Well, I'm sitting there uh, giving them a big laugh, and uh, and they go for it. They loved it, and they said, well, would you like to do this? And I said, let me get back to you. So I called uh, my... <laughs> 
my friend closest. And I said, what about these guys? It's their first movie. You know, you got uh, Will Ferrell, and, uh, uh, a number that you uh, you don't, you haven't heard of. And uh, my my friend uh, said, no, you know, you never know. Uh, you just never know if it's going to be a hit or a miss. But it, they're good people doing it. So, you know, why not take a chance? So with that advice, I said, okay, I'll do it. It turned out to be the the biggest um, humor movie in 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 the decade following, and I say that because I I saw it listed in the top 100 movies by a French source, <laughs> and Anchorman was the only American film wow. even up there. You know they have the quirky sense of humor uh, over there. Uh, Jerry Lewis is a favorite, and, and so that's uh, I'm I'm glad I did. Every because I said, oh, I'll kill my career. It's a big risk. Every single anchor man in the country is jealous <laughs> and wanted to, to do it. And you know, there's this myth that said, oh, it was me. It was me. You know, in San Diego, I know the guy. Detroit, I know the anchor man that was the model. And uh, <laughs> we left. Well, we all worked with guys like Ron Burgundy, right? <laughs> we did. Oh, we did. Now it was a good chance to laugh at him. Now I have to but, ask you, know, you about this, Bill. Is it true that uh, you and your sister inherited what we know as the little house on the prairie? True, true, true. Wow. Um, uh, it we have a little replica log cabin of where the Engels lived and a one-room schoolhouse that we moved on. Uh, my grandmother, um, you know there and a little tiny post office from wayside kansas we're 14 miles according to the book away from uh, independence and they went through the records and um you know put a pin in a map uh, best estimation and it landed on my mother's farm now the irony is that the osage indians who occupied the reservation at the time were getting ready to be moved off they knew it and so old charlie ingles was um, uh, trespassing, and he thought he'd be there first, and uh, he really just couldn't uh, kill enough game to support the family for a year <laughs> until the reservation changed. Anyway, they don't, they don't appreciate the, the what they call the racist depiction of uh, the Osage tribe. When they were moved off, uh, they lost a lot in the process, but they landed on a huge piece of land in Oklahoma, that uh, just happened to have oil. So they were <laughs> smart enough to keep the oil rights, sell off the surface, and became the richest per capita uh, people, 2,000 strong in their tribe, in the world. And right now there's a uh, movie being made by Martin Scorsese, and uh, they're shooting at the, uh, in Pahuska, Oklahoma, back in the 20s, they had so much money, and and there with the the story about oh um, you know we had a Stets, such Bearcat brand new and it ran out of gas. And they thought it something was wrong with it, so they went and bought another. One. <laughs> uh, and that's how much money they made. Paris fashion um, designers open shops in Pahuska, Oklahoma, so that uh, because that's where the money was. Well, the problem was that they were making so much money, uh, white men um, would marry one of, well, marry the Indian women, and because they would share the head rights to the monthly payment of oil royalties, and uh, they would marry them after killing the husband. So there were 20 murders associated with the time of the murders. Um, and now the, they've written a story. They, they solved the problem. A young guy in the Justice Department, Justice Department didn't even have jurisdiction over the Indian uh, tribe. They thought the reservations were sovereign nations. And um, then they finally said, okay, the FBI, there wasn't even an FBI. Well, the Justice Department, you go solve it. And a young man named J. Edgar Hoover <laughs> was assigned you know, the job of uh, solving, and he used undercover agents for the first time. So it, it'll be a hell of a movie. But anyway, that's the history. You have a lot of history down there as the frontier moved west. 
What a wonderful story. Out of story. New England, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> Bill, thank you so much. I've enjoyed your work for many, many years. Appreciate you making time for us today. Thank you, Rich. I always hate to talk after somebody like Bill Curtis comes on. My voice seems so ineffective. <laughs> One of those uh, quintessential hard acts to follow. Yes, yeah, and what a good guy and fun conversation. Uh, Bill Curtis here on Downtown, the podcast. We'll pause for a word from our friends at Cross Insurance. And when we come back, we take you back to the 70s, the Bronx Zoo, the New York Yankee teams, and a former member, baseball's first designated hitter, Ron Bloomberg, and co-author Dan Epstein discuss their book, The Captain and Me, next on Downtown the Podcast. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With a network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Hey, we're back here on Downtown, the podcast. Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell. Of course, the Doobie Brothers, the captain and me, that uh, was one of former Yankee catcher and captain Thurman Munson's favorite song. And it was, oh, music, food, and much more that led to an unlikely bond between the catcher from Ohio and Jewish Southern designated hitter Ron Bloomberg. They came together on those early 70s teams and formed a great friendship and were part of terrific teams making their way to the glory years of the, the mid-70s and the Bronx Zoo. All chronicled in a new book, Ron Bloomberg and Dan Epstein. The book is called The Captain and Me, On and Off the Field with Thurman Munson. Dan, can you tell us how you and Ron first got together for this project? Basically, uh, a long story short, we were brought together by uh, Rob Wilson, who is Ron's agent. And um, he, uh, he knew Ron was, was looking to uh, you know, look at, had a couple of book ideas and, uh, this was one of them. And, uh, he through our mutual friend, David Jordan, who's also a client of Rob's, uh, who's, it was a good friend of mine, um, put me and Ron in touch. And, uh, we, you know, had a phone conversation about what he wanted to do and kind of hit it off immediately. And, uh, I thought the Thurman book was a great idea and that, you know, being a fan of Thurman myself from back when I was a kid, like, you know, this was a figure that I was interested in, in uh, learning about. And so, you know, to, to talk to Ron a couple times a week and, and hear him tell his Thurman and Yankee stories. And, and, uh, and it was probably the most fun I ever had writing a book. Well, Ron, I, uh, I grew up and, and well, still am a Red Sox fan. And yet for some reason, I always, I always was a fan of Thurman's uh, and of yours. And I love those particularly early 70 Yankees for some reason, but, but from a fan perspective, you two seem so very different. And to me, that's the beauty of the book is uh, we get to learn that uh, while superficially you might not have been the same type of guy, you two had an awful lot in common. Well, Rich, the, the greatest part of it is, even though that you're a Red Sox fan, remember one thing. The Yankees won when we wanted to, and you won when you could. Remember that. <laughs> remember that, okay? Don't ever forget that now, okay? Now, even though I'm talking to somebody that uh, is wearing, what, blue and red, I got the beautiful pinstripes. So I got something that's over you a little bit. But but anyway, let me tell you something. I, you know, I mean, I had no idea that I was going to write another book. You know, my first book, it was just a, like a play thing. It was fun. It did extremely well, uh, especially in the Jewish organizations down in uh, New York City. And uh, so it, it did well. So basically, uh, I was down in... Uh, uh, spring training, and I saw Diana Munson down at Yankee Fantasy Camp, and uh, always had an idea that always had an idea that I would like to uh, 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 write something about uh, a Thurman, 
but I spoke to Marty Appel. Marty Appel wrote a, a really a beautiful book about uh, 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 about uh, Thurman, and uh, Marty actually wanted to have Diana to write the forward of the book, but uh, Diana never wanted to have anybody to write the forward of any type of book. So I said, okay, I'm going to give it a shot. So Diana has always been a great friend of mine. Of course, Thurman was, of course, you know, and I went up to Diana and, and I said, Diana, what I'm thinking about doing, and I need your blessing over this. Uh, I am looking maybe to write a book about Thurman, not about baseball, to tell him, uh, to tell the people what type of person he actually was. And she looked at me and she said, Ron, if anybody can do it, you can do it. I give you my blessing and I want to be part of it. And that's how we got started. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it has really been fun because let me tell you something, you know, you read all these other baseball books that to me, they're very boring and what they, you know, the players used to do this and they did that and they hit 320, uh, you know, they hit a home run off of this guy. And, you know, I mean, it's a typical baseball book, but Dan is such a creator and what he has done with this book, he created a gold mine, to be honest with you. And I just got off the phone with uh, Triumph, and they said this might be one of their best books they uh, had in the last six or seven years. And uh, I spoke to Rob Wilson, who was our uh, um, a literary agent. And he thinks, he thinks the way it's going now, and he said, I don't want to jinx you. But he said that uh, you might get in the New York Times and, you know, to be a bestseller. And and also, let me tell you something. The person at Triumph, uh, when they contacted me, I said, you know, how many people actually get in the uh, Wall Street Journal? And they said, not too many people do that. <laughs> so, I, hey, you know, I don't know if it's all lousy books out there now and I'm the it's a, it's a process of, of elimination or was or were we really a great book but I got to say one thing I think we're a great book and we are a book that people are going to read for years after years after years well I got hooked very early in the book with a couple of things one again coming from the Boston perspective I, I laughed out loud when you talked about how awful Vinny Orlando's clubhouse spread was at Fenway back in the day. Oh, it was a worse. You know, I, I, you know, I mean, I thought you were going to talk about the first thing I did with, with the devil legs, you know, I mean, I, you know, no Vince, you know, I, I knew we were going to have Kabasi. I knew we were going to have a uh, 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 sauerkraut and I knew we were going to have all the relish. But, you know, I mean, you, you go into the, uh, uh, you know, to a stadium an awful lot. And, you know, you go from the clubhouse down to the field and you got to, you know, go down that little ramp. And I don't know if it's changed or not because I haven't been back there the last 40 something years. But let me tell you something. That's one place that, you know, you could go on Halloween and you could scare the fool out of somebody <laughs> because there's no lights down there. And if somebody wanted to have a joke, and put a snake uh, on the ground or something like that. And you could see these people jump like 400 feet up in the air. But uh, no, Vince wasn't the best in the food. But he was a great guy. But unfortunately, the clubhouse wasn't the largest in the world. And But he did have pretty good capacity. And, and, and you, you you guys like playing at Fenway though, you were saying. Oh, I love the, I love the, uh, hey, the fans of the golf. I love them because they hated us. We hated them. Whenever we used to uh, go out and uh, take BP and we used to uh, warm up for a game, that crowd up in center field, they hated us, they hated us so much. And uh, they could boo with the best of them. They're like New Yorkers a little bit. And most of those kids back then, and I'm talking back back then because I know how much it's changed, but the people out in center field back then were most of the college kids. And most of the college kids hated us. And like I said, we hated them. And that's why we had so many fights. And that's why we hated the Red Sox. And the Red Sox hated us. 
We're talking with Ron Bloomberg and Dan Epstein about their terrific new book, The Captain and Me, On and Off the Field with Thurman Munson. And uh, one of the interesting figures in, in the book, Dan, is uh, Nat Tarnapol, who became such a good friend to Ron and uh, really brings music, and, and we know about your love of music, and, and makes music a big part of this story. Yeah, that, I mean, that that was a really fun thing about writing this book is that I, you know, find out that Ron is a big music fan and that Nat Tarnapol, who was the president of Brunswick Records and who produced all these great soul uh, hits in the late 60s and early 70s, you know, was such a big part of the story. And, uh, you know, and also, I mean, you know, Nat was a huge Yankees fan, so he was going to all the games and he and uh, he was Jewish and and uh, you know had originally wanted to be a ball player himself. So he kind of uh, uh, you know uh, kind of took Ron under his wing when he came to New York. But then because of Ron's closeness with Thurman, Nat became really tight with Thurman as well. And you know I think that that's a it's a really important friendship for both these guys. And also kind of had them moving in circles that you wouldn't necessarily expect, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, inter entertainers, you know, guys from the Shylites and, uh, or, or, or mobsters who were also a big part of the Nat Darnipole scene. And, and Ron, you know, Ron, you took me back uh, to my younger days, uh, hanging out in Boston, seeing games when, when you mentioned going to Daisy Buchanan's. Oh, we lived there. I mean, we, we the good part about it, we got all the free drinks because it was owned by all the hockey players there. And, you know, we used to see Derek uh, Sanderson there all the time. We used to see Epizino there all the time. And then once in a while, you know, you, you might get somebody like Dwight Evans would come in or, uh, you know, one of those guys. But, you know, Daisy's was great. I mean, it was great. Hey, but, you know, they had some pretty good-looking women there too. So, it was, <laughs> so I, I, I gotta say, it was it was uh, it was a a place to go to, and it was fun to go to, and it was right around the corner from my hotel, so we didn't have to take a forty-five minute uh, uh, cab ride like you have to do in New York sometimes. <laughs> and uh, we would go there and eat. And and what was the name of that delicatessen? Kins. Ken's Deli. Remember Ken's? <laughs> I do, yes. I re it was really, really fun. You know, Boston was a great town. You know, we used to walk downtown. People used to look at us and, you know, they used to, you know, they used to get us when we're walking downtown, you know, like they did at the ballpark. But uh, like I said before, it was fun to play the Red Sox. And Dan, I, I, I found myself wondering if you wished you could somehow go back in time post-game in Detroit and go to Willie Horton's club. Oh man, absolutely! Uh, what was it, Club Twenty Three? I mean, it's uh, yeah. I mean, I, I grew up. Uh, I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, so the Tigers were my first team. And in fact, and I talk about this in the intro of the book that the very first major league game I ever attended was at Tiger Stadium, Tigers Yankees, and Thurman hit a home run. So it, it feels you know very full circle that uh, forty five years later. Uh, I, I'm involved with this book. And Ron, I don't think that the average baseball fan would have pictured the Thurman Munson that we learn about in the book. And, and that's a guy that, uh, well, among other things, couldn't wait to read the Wall Street Journal and check the financial pages. Oh, he was a businessman. I mean, you know, uh, even though he never uh, 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 showered and always was <laughs> dirty and, you know, that doesn't make a bit of difference. It, you know, he had deep pockets. He understood the business world. And, you know, uh, uh, he always, uh, uh, he was, you know, Thurman was a, you know, I mean, when, when he was out on the uh, field, he was all business. Uh, he was a guy that, you know, would get into your face if he didn't like you. Uh, maybe one of your favorite catchers in Boston, like uh, maybe Carlton Fisk. <laughs> Uh, we, uh, they, we, they had some run-ins. They didn't like each other too much, but, uh, uh, it was, it was competitiveness. Who was better? Who was better? But uh, Thurman was, you know, during the off season, I think he was involved. You know, I never, uh, I think Dan knew about it more than I did because I didn't look at his business aspects of it. I just knew him out on the baseball field and what we used to play around with, uh, uh during the off season. But when he used to go to uh, back to Canton, 
He always talked about uh, uh, the uh, 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 his business deals, uh, uh, his condos he's buying and land that he's buying. And but I never got involved in that. You know that was too high powered for me. You know I didn't have any money back when I was playing and. You know, I don't know how he got his money. I, I don't even want to ask him how he got his money. But uh, uh, so, but we had a wonderful time. We had a great relationship. And, and, and like I told you before, it was like bang the drum slowly. And, you know, there was, and you, you saw it, and the catcher, you know, was uh, 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 sick, and, and the pitcher took care of him. And, and uh, we're actually in the movie, Thurman and I That's was right. actually in the bang the drum slowly because. It wasn't done at Fenway Park. It was done in Yankee Stadium. Remember that, Rich. It was done in Yankee Stadium, <laughs> and uh, uh, so I'm digging at you a little bit. But <laughs> Fenway Park was fun. We had a great time in Fenway Park. You know, with this little monster, and then you had the gamblers out in right field, uh, the old timers. I don't know if you knew about that. They had the old ushers. Uh, they're watching us and they betting and you can watch them. They betting every time somebody got a base hit <laughs> or taking BP out there, this guy's going to hit the ball longer than this guy. And back then they threw it like a dollar out on the card table. You saw them and it was so much fun. It really was. It was fun to go to Boston and uh, it was fun to, you know, uh, play against them. I love the stories of you taking Thurman to the stage deli and uh, well, I, in many ways, welcoming him into the Jewish community. Oh, wait, wait you, you, you got to be in New York City. What are you going to do? <laughs> you, you think he was used to the White Castle. You think we had White Castles? If we had a White Castle in uh, New York, how much you think it would cost? <laughs> you know, I mean, hey, you know, I mean, I think it's probably cheaper to go to 21 than going to the White Castles, you know. But uh, uh, yeah, you know, my whole life, you know, uh, I love corned beef and pastrami and briskets and hay sours and, and potato salad and coleslaw and, and Dr. Brown's. And then you get the big cheesecake and the rice pudding <laughs> and the 12-inch and the, uh, 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 pieces of cake. You know, I mean, uh, he never had any of that stuff. And uh, maybe that's why he gained a few pounds when he was up in New York because I fed him too well, you know. Dan, were you happy to learn from Ron that uh, Oscar Gamble was such a good guy? Well, you know, I, I, that didn't surprise me. Everything I'd ever heard about Oscar was that he was just a really sweet person, uh, funny, and, uh, you know, uh, just just uh, a, a good time to hang around with. So, you know, but but it, it, it was fun for me to, to hear about, you know, how even before Oscar was on the Yankees that he and he and Ron kind of clicked and we're always kind of, you know, giving talking smack to each other around the batting cage. And I, I, I would have loved to have been there for that, but, you know, talking to Ron about it was, it was the next best thing. Ron, one you of know, my favorite stories in the book is uh, after Steinbrenner bought the team and you uh, uh, and Thurman and a couple others got called upstairs to talk about uh, your hair. And, and I love the way that was resolved. It was kind of a test of you guys. Oh, you know, hey, we have a pretty good season. And, uh, uh, you know, you had Catfish and you had uh, 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 you had um, uh, Thurman and, and you had, uh, uh, let me see who else, you had uh, Pinella. You know, all of a sudden we go to the ballpark and we had a, like a, a something at the uh, in our, uh, in our uh, uh, locker and it says uh, uh, George wanted you to come up at a certain time. So we all came together and we said, why are we all going up together? We know we're not going to get a raise because we're not making any money now. What are they going to do? Give us an extra dollar for meal money? We knew we're not going to get any money. So we get up to George's place, right? Uh, George is very nice to us till we started looking around. So we saw a barber and we said, what in the world, you know, a barber is going doing up there? He said, you know, in this club right here, you know, uh, you're not, uh, your hair is too long. I said, screw you. I, I'm hitting 406. I said, I'm not going to get a haircut. You know, Catfish was probably, you know, uh, he's having a great season. Uh, Thurman was having a super season, and uh, Pinella was hitting over 300. So, you know, we didn't end uh, the uh, uh, a meeting too well. 
So we left because we had a game we had to go to. We had to get ready for the game. So we walked downstairs and we all looked at each other. They said, you think we're going to get, uh, uh, you think they're going to release us? You know, <laughs> like that. And I said, how in the world are they going to release us? You know, somebody, we're hitting 400. You know, Pinell is having a catfish and all that stuff. Uh, a Thurman, no way. So we get down on the elevator and we look at each other and said, you know, uh, we'll find out tomorrow if we got to release papers. So we got to the ballpark the next day. I forgot all about it. So I saw a letter for George and everybody got the same letter. And we looked at each other and they said, what do you think this is? And it's just like having something certified. If you see something certified coming to your house, you don't want to sign for it. And we started thinking maybe we should just put it away and not even look at it. And we tell George we didn't get anything, right? So we opened it up. It was a $100 bill. And back then, that was like as much as we made that month. You know, that's how really, seriously, we didn't make much money. So we looked at each other and he wrote a letter. He said, I respect you more. Thanks for sticking up for yourself like that. So that was the type of person George was. You know, he doesn't want a weakling on, on his team. He wants somebody to stick up. You know, if somebody uh, gets thrown at, he, he would like for the pitch, uh, for the uh, a batter to go out to the pitcher, you know, and, and uh, uh, get in their face. And, you know, that was the type of guy he was. He was very, he was one of the greatest human beings you have ever met before. He was a second father to me. And people loved him sometimes and they hated him sometimes. But let me tell you something. When it came down to the nitty gritty, this guy would do anything. I mean, anything in the world for you. And I hate to tell you how many guys on our team that we played in the 70s that, you know, didn't make a lot of money and they lost a lot of money. They were still on the payroll with uh, uh, George. George took care of them. And that's what type of guy that George was. He was a, he was he was the greatest human being in the world, but he could he could kick you as hard as anybody and he could get in your face with anybody. You know, I've, I've heard great stories about him from uh, one of our main guys who was in the system forever and eventually became manager for a while, Stump Merrill. And uh, he, he talked about how George was always there for him. Oh, Stump was great. You know, I mean, uh, he took care of Stump. Absolutely. It was just like uh, 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 Billy Connors. Remember Billy Connors? Yep. Uh, Billy uh, uh, had a li- like a lifetime contract with George. And there was another guy that was a bat boy who uh, worked with George for years after years and still with him, Ray Negron. And Ray has written many uh, children's books. And uh, uh, George saw him uh, uh, writing graffiti on the wall at Yankee Stadium. And he took him in, became a bat boy. And I said, oh, no, this guy is going to come down to our locker. He's going to steal everything we had, (laughs) you know, like that. But he became a very, very close friend, and he's still a close friend of ours. And, and, uh, yeah, if you are good to George, George takes care of you. If you're nasty to him, if you uh, don't show him respect, he'll get rid of you in a second and never talk to you again. So, Ron, you went through some devastating injuries uh, there in, in the mid-'70s, including a, a terrible injury down at Chain of Lakes Park uh, in Winter Haven. And the guy who was there for you the, throughout all of it was Thurman Munson, not just supporting you, but but making sure that the other players understood your place on that team. You know, I was coming off in 76. I was injured. I, I had a shoulder operation. And then in 77, I would go down to spring training and had a super spring. And... Uh, uh, was ready to make a, a major comeback with the team because I was out going on two years, a little maybe over a little bit over two years, and uh, uh, had a super spring. I think I had like eight or nine home runs in spring training. That was pretty big uh, down in spring training because he wanted me to have a lot of abs. And the guy who was going to be the right-handed DH was a guy named uh, Jimmy Wynn, Toy Cannon. And um, I'm never going to forget, uh, they released him about four days before uh, uh, we were supposed to go to Boston, to uh, 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 Winter Haven, to play the Red Sox. And uh, uh, Billy put me out in left field. 
Uh, I don't know uh, if you remember when I think it was Gary Carter who had that uh, uh, yes. got really injured out there and got like 40 stitches on his head because they didn't have a warning track that tells you that that uh, wall out there was totally concrete. And uh, playing left field, I think Doug uh, Griffin, uh, that's what uh, um, Dan told me that he hit. Uh, I ran into the wall, and I'm never going to forget that uh, 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 Gene Monahan, who was our trainer, and uh, 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 Herman Snyder, who was uh, uh, left us to go to the White Sox and became the uh, head trainer for the White Sox for 25 years. I remember they all, when I ran out there, I hit the wall, they thought I died. I just hit the wall, I just went down. Uh, they come running out, and I'm never going to forget what Billy said to me. He said, I can't believe you. I just released Jimmy Wynn. I don't have another DH. <laughs> and I'm on the field, and, you know, I'm on the field. Herman Snyder's trying to, you know, wipe all the blood away from my nose. My kneecap was like uh, uh, bone chips were coming out of my knees. And, you know, Billy runs back, and he and, and he called somebody, and was trying to find another DH. And so that got us on a, a little bit of bad, you know, uh, uh, blood that uh, Billy did not like that. And unfortunately, I got injured and uh, got injured again. And uh, 77 was a bad year injury and Thurman took care of me. And uh, that was the bang the drum slowly. One of the things that he did to make sure that the older ball players, the other ball players, did not say anything behind my back, and some of them did, and uh, Thurman uh, uh, took care of it and uh, stood up for me. Uh, you talk in the book about your reaction when you heard the news about Thurman's plane crash, and, and just, I'm sure at the time, uh, just unbelievable for you and, and everybody involved in the situation that, that this guy who was such a force of nature, such a larger-than-life personality, could possibly be gone so soon. Well, you know, that was devastating to us and everybody in New York and every baseball fan because, you know, a lot of people, if they didn't like him, the way that he played baseball, he was a winner totally. And he was a total team captain for the New York Yankees. He was a guy that everybody looked up to. He was our George Patton of uh, uh, that you, you would get on the in the foxhole and let this guy uh, be your leader. And that was the type of guy he was. And whoever thought that he would go back to uh, Canton to visit his family and get on it. We knew that he was, he flies, but we never knew that he was going to fly uh, back then. And he did. And unfortunately, uh, um, unfortunately, um, it happened. And uh, it was devastating. It was devastating to me, to everybody on the team. And it was one of the, uh, uh, to this day, I think about it. And uh, he was my brother, and I lost my brother. And uh, he was a guy that took care of me uh, through my down years. And unfortunately, uh, I could not take care of him. But I said to Diana, I'm going to do everything I possibly can to get this guy into the Hall of Fame where he deserves. Well, let's talk about that. Uh, Dan, it was not a long career for Thurman Munson, but it's not very difficult to make a case for him as a Hall of Famer, I, I happen to see on social media over the weekend, our mutual friend Jay Jaffe weighed in on that as well. And, and he's certainly worthy and ought to be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I, I, I understand that the whole line about like, well, he didn't play that long, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think Thurman's case is it goes well beyond numbers or years played. I think um, the... Uh, you know, you look at the 70s and you can really make a good case that, uh, you know, Thurman was at the very least the third best catcher of the 1970s. And and I think you could definitely make a case that he was the second best catcher behind Johnny Bench. And, and uh, you know, and this is a guy who won the Rookie of the Year award, won the M M AL MVP, uh, led the Yankees to three straight pennants and two straight World Series championships, none of which they would have achieved without him. I mean, what more do you want the guy to do? I think he really, uh, you know, if you talk to anybody back then, and, and in fact, like people, 
people are still surprised today when they learn that Thurman is not in the hall because it's just sort of, you know, if, if you grew up back then you and maybe you checked out of baseball uh, after that, you just kind of assume like, yeah, he was one of the greats. Why wouldn't he be in there? And and uh, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely a, a big hall guy to uh, to begin with. But I, I really think you look at Thurman and everything he meant to the Yankees and to baseball and and as good as he was as a player, I, like how would Thurman's induction to the Hall of Fame in any way compromise that institution? And, and Ron, it's, it's so great to learn about him through your friendship and your memories. And I love what Diana Munson says uh, in the forward to the book that you, maybe even more than her, you knew him as well as anybody. And you and Dan bring him to life so much in this book. It gives us a much greater understanding of, of a great baseball player, but also a guy who was, who was clearly a, a, as great a friend as anybody could hope to have. Well, it was because, I mean, he was a brother to me and he was just not a baseball player and he was not just my teammate. He was my brother. We did so many things together on and off the field. And I was so, so happy that uh, Dan and I were put together where, with Rob Wilson. And uh, uh, Dan is such a writer. And, you know, I mean, uh, I had, you know, some doubts about, you know, did I really want to do this? And I know Dan had some doubts about really wanting till we met each other. And, you know, and I'm not the most uh, uh, introverted guy in the whole world. And uh, um, so, you know, he so he could get a lot of stories out of me. But unfortunately, uh, um, uh, you know, he had to put a lot of the pieces, to a lot of pieces together, but a lot of information. But I knew that once we start putting this together, that this book was going to be incredible. And it is incredible because it's a baseball book, a football book, a basketball book is a book. But this is more, this is a human interest uh, story yeah. where, you know, uh, uh, really where, you know, people really takes care of one another and they became real friendly with one another. And we had fights with one another. And it was like, it was a marriage, basically, you know, in athletics. And you don't have that too much anymore. And, you know, and uh, uh, like Dan said, he deserves to be in the uh, Hall of Fame, not just because of uh, uh, his, uh, what he's, he did for X amount of years, but to play in New York, it takes a certain uh, a person to be able to play in New York especially when you have George Steinbrenner as your boss and the fans in New York City. And, you know, and you have to live and die good times and bad times. And, and that's why in 77 they called us the Bronx Zoo because that team right there, uh, we didn't have too many uh, 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 days that we didn't have fights in our clubhouse. But that's what made the Yankees – and that's why Sparky Lau called it the Bronx Zoo, because it was the Bronx Zoo. Well, you two make a great team. This is a wonderful book. Yeah, uh, it's it's about baseball, but it's about so much more friendship, teamwork, uh, music, as Dan, you always do. It captures a, a time in America in the 1970s, and uh, it's, it's a wonderful read. The Captain and Me, On and Off the Field with Thurman Munson, Ron Bloomberg, and Dan Epstein. Thank you both so much for joining us today, and we wish you much success with the book and uh, hopefully also uh, success in, in getting a shot at the Hall of Fame for Thurman. Well, thanks so much for having us, Rich. Always a pleasure. Well, Rich, I hope the food is better <laughs> uh, in the clubhouse and what it was when we had it. But I know it's a lot better because I talked to some of the guys, and they said every ballpark they have, they have steaks, and they have, and, and especially up in uh, – uh, with the lobsters up in, uh, 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 you know, up in Boston. I know that the uh, bank account, they won't have to have a big bank account <laughs> to eat all the lobsters, what they have up there. But Rich, thank you very much for having us. And, you know, you're a wonderful guy. And maybe we could get you one day to put the Yankee pinstripes on. I might even do that for you, Ron. No question about it. <laughs> Thanks, Rich. Thank you guys so much. Appreciate it. Right. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Just love talking about the early 70s baseball. Dan Epstein, uh, always great when he's on our show from his previous books, Big Hair and Plastic Grass, 
and stars and strikes, but uh, he, and, he and Ron Bloomberg make a pretty good combination. Yeah, it's a wonderful book. I mean, just the, the storytelling of the book. Uh, the, Bloomberg's storytelling prowess was pretty evident in the interview. It, yeah. it becomes even more evident in the book. As he says, he's not shy about talking. <laughs> <laughs> and But you can understand how that would also further that relationship mm. with the, the usually pretty reticent Thurman Munson. But I, I think also when clearly one of the aims of the book is uh, for them to bring attention back to Thurman Munson for the Veterans Committee to give him a shot that he deserves to be in baseball's Hall of Fame. Absolutely. I mean, I was a huge Yankees fan as a kid, and Thurman Munson was one of those guys that I just absolutely loved. Even beyond that, though, I think any observer has to look at what career he did have. And, man, he he was a Hall of Fame catcher. It's just a matter of time. That's a wonderful book, The Captain and Me. Our thanks to Dan Epstein, Ron Bloomberg, and, of course, to the great Bill Curtis as well, and to you for joining us. We'll see you next time right here on Downtown the Podcast.